0: The FDA was non-existent because this was a compounding pharmacy and not a large drug manufacturing company, uh, or at least they were not holding themselves out as that. We know otherwise. We know that they were incredibly successful. They had a very successful and lucrative business, and as um, Representative Markey has so I think aptly put it, they were masquerading as a compounding pharmacy in order to escape FDA regulation when, in actuality, they were operating as a drug manufacturer.
1: This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys. Bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network.
2: Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California, very sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. And as many of you know, normally my co-host Bob Ambrosia would be talking at this point, but he's off this week, so here we go. A meningitis outbreak has put a sense of fear into many people across the United States. The New England Compounding Center, an ECC, a pharmacy confounder based in Massachusetts, shipped out tainted medications to 23 states, resulting in a national fungal meningitis outbreak. These steroid shots were intended for people suffering from back and neck pain. The mishap has resulted in 23 deaths and counting, with 294 reported cases and many fearful of their health. On the NECC website, there is a statement on the recall and a link for information to the FDA. There are developments daily. A federal criminal investigation has been launched. Massachusetts has revoked NECC's pharmacist license. Plus, various hospitals have sent out warnings to patients about a heart drug produced by NECC. And NEC has shut down operations and recalled all products. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be talking about the litigation stemming from the meningitis scare, the FDA, the CDC, and all of this regulation. And to help us do that, joining us now is attorney Michael F. Barrett. He's a personal injury attorney from the firm Salts, Mongluzzi, Barrett, and Bendesky. P.C. Michael focuses on medical malpractice, professional negligence, civil rights, and a broad spectrum of other civil litigation cases in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, and the District of Columbia. A champion of medical malpractice victims, Mr. Barrett is committed to raising the level of care provided by health care providers. Welcome, Michael Barrett. Thank you.
0: Pleasure to be with you.
2: And also joining us today is I, Glenn Cohen, Assistant Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Petrie-Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. Professor Cohen is one of the world's leading experts on the intersection of bioethics, sometimes also called medical ethics, and the law as well as health law. He also teaches civil procedure, and he will be with us for a portion of our program today, the beginning portion. So welcome to the show, Glenn.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: So, Glenn, let's start with you. Uh, Can you kind of give us a brief overview of what's been happening with this meningitis uh, scare or issue that's been going on across the United States?
3: Well, yeah. So, uh, it involves compounding pharmacies, right, and steroids produced by the compounding pharmacies that have been linked to a meningitis outbreak. And we've seen a raft. I don't know what the number is now. Maybe it's 10, 11, 12, 13 lawsuits uh, getting filed around the country, basically trying to sue Uh, the compounding pharmacy, as well as in at least one case out of Illinois, I think, uh, the prescribing physician and some others uh, trying to sue them
0: for uh, violations, mostly medical malpractice.
2: And Michael, uh, what's a compound pharmacy?
0: Well, that's a very good question. And that's what we're all trying to understand. Uh, A compound pharmacy or these compounding pharmacies are pharmacies, and I use that word loosely, that are supposed to uh, reprocess drugs on a large scale to fit patients' needs. Uh, They are uh, supposedly boutique specialized uh, businesses. Um, The problem here is that uh, NECC was far from that. While it may have started out as a uh, simple mom-and-pop compounding pharmacy, it morphed into much more than that. Uh, historically, the compounding pharmacies would uh, do just that, compound uh, prescriptions for specialized cases for patients who possibly would have allergies to certain elements of the prescription and would need a specialized, unique recipe um, they were limited in scope. In fact, NECC started out uh, being a very small company with the two pharmacists. Uh, what happened, however, is that it, as I indicated, morphed into much more. Um, it, it uh, I think that Representative Markey, um, a, a Democrat from Massachusetts in the House of Representatives, uh, said it very well. He said that what NECC has done is to masquerade as a compounding pharmacy in order to escape federal regulation when it was actually operating as a uh, drug manufacturer.
3: And just to be clear, um, in the history of the U.S., right, we've had uh, the intersection of food and drug law and the FDA's authority and the authority of the state boards of pharmacy Uh, Historically, compounding has been uh, kind of a flashpoint for most of its history. The U.S. federal government ignored compounding, leaving it to state boards of pharmacy. But then starting in the 1990s, there was sort of an increase in the popularity of the practice and also increases in the awareness of risks. And we had kind of a back and forth between industry, organized pharmacy, and the agency leading to a series of legislative attempts to regulate it from FDA's side, but it's still a place where where FDA's authority uh, ends and state board of pharmacies' authority begins is still very much contested ground.
2: Well, and is it really that the state board, the Massachusetts State Board of Pharmacy, was regulating NECC?
0: Well, uh, it doesn't appear that they were. They were efforts and attempts uh, because NECC uh, has had a checkered past. Um, they have been subjected to claims of. A similar type earlier, uh, in this century. And for reasons which at this point remain unclear, um, they were able to, uh, get by that and get past that without any, um, uh, discipline being assessed, without any penalties, without any, uh, uh, consequences such as there are now. But I think, uh, Professor Cohen's absolutely correct. Uh, uh, a true compounding company would be subject to state law, state regulations, while a drug manufacturer would be subject to the FDA. Uh, This became much more and was able to, uh, I think, work and serve as a uh, drug manufacturer, a a drug company uh, that was, in essence, unregulated.
2: How how widespread is this? I mean, are there compounding pharmacies across the country? Is this a is NECC an unusual thing, or is this something that's very common?
3: I mean, there are definitely compounding pharmacies across the country, and there actually have been F- prior FDA enforcement actions against some of them and just to give you a list this was from a report FDA did in the early 2000s for example um there was a case involving fentanyl lollipops believe it or not that's what they call it uh and F- F- FDA in New Hampshire inspection tried to shut them down there was a case about a compounding pharmacy in 2002 in South Carolina involving uh I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly methylprednisone acetate uh, there was a warning letter to a California pharmacy also in 2002. So there have been a, a history of regulatory actions. And as I said, really, uh, phar- pharmacy compounding took uh, took increasing prominence as an industry starting in And I don't have the numbers in front of me. My impression is that this has been a, pr- a pretty steady practice of growth.
2: Well, Michael, let's talk about the... Lawsuits that are going to be filed against NECC by the individuals a wrongful death, and I'm assuming some uh, some type of professional negligence. What's what's happening on that front?
0: Presently, we have uh, filed three lawsuits in the Superior Court of New Jersey in Cumberland County. Uh, I am presently representing approximately 20 victims. Uh, we will be filing. One, if not two more today. I anticipate and expect that we'll be filing uh, at least 15 separate lawsuits born and on behalf of, of these victims. Uh, all of these individuals, uh, regrettably, were exposed to the uh, fungal uh, meningitis, to this contaminant. Uh, they have all suffered symptomatology of meningitis. They have... Uh, Most of them required spinal taps. Um, The uh, spinal taps have come back in different uh, states and types, some uh, with greater findings of white blood cells, therefore indicative of an infection, others less. Um, It's an epidemic. The calls, we are fielding calls 24-7, Uh, I think that the estimates for the amount of exposure to this contaminant are low.
2: Just out of curiosity, what are the symptoms, the medical symptoms that people are seeing as a consequence of exposure to this particular drug?
0: Well, what what we're seeing is that um, there have been fevers, photosensitivity, uh, localized pain, headaches, slurred speech. Uh, a a symptom described as a heavy tongue uh stiffness uh in the neck um and of course the the uh, most severe symptoms are paraplegia and of course there's been death uh, chills vomiting uh and the overriding mental and emotional anxiety uh these folks uh, are living under a, a, a black cloud. They don't know whether their symptomatology is going to get worse, uh they're going to get better. Uh, most of them seem uh, to not be getting better. They report having these symptoms for a significant period of time. And we're also finding that the initial estimates for the incubation period are, are low. Um, it, some of these symptoms are... Um, being realized more than four weeks after the the uh, initial injections. And if, if
3: I might ask, actually, a question of my my learned friend on the other side of the telephone, um, I'm curious whether you've thought about pursuing any class-wide relief, class-action relief, and also whether you anticipate any CC removing the actions you are filing to federal court. Well,
0: what um, professor, what what we have done in these cases is that we have included the uh, medical centers, hospitals, and physicians. Uh, And the reasons we've included them is because, uh, at least from what we can see thus far, there has been a known and recognized problem at NACC uh, for a significant period of time. Uh, Going back to at least as early as 2006, and there are problems that have gone back as far as 1999. And our concern is that the uh, hospitals, the um, centers where these medications were given, and the physicians uh, knew or should have known of the problems that were occurring at the compounding pharmacy Um, Back in in 2006, for example, there's a report of inadequate documentation and inadequate process process controls involving sterilization at NECC. Um, Many of these uh, injections were given early uh, this past summer and patients began to develop symptoms and despite that, uh, the physicians continued to be given to the same patients and other patients uh, until uh, the beginning of the fall. So um, we have reason to um, include the defendants, the, the medical defendants, in our cases, and uh, we intend to um, proceed with discovery to determine uh, the amount and extent of their knowledge. Uh, as our clients are from uh, New Jersey all of them and these defendants are federal block uh, removal yeah local the, these cases cannot be removed to federal court at this time
2: Glenn what's your assessment of the potential liability of the hospitals and the doctors that administered these these uh, shots
0: well at at this point in time uh, clearly, we want to ask them a lot of questions. We want to conduct discovery, both written discovery as well as taking depositions, to determine the amount and extent of their knowledge uh, with regard to NECC.
2: Right, um, Michael. I was I was going to try to direct that question to Glenn, since he's I'm a sorry.
1: professor.
0: No, 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 no. I'm <laughs> um, sorry. What I, what I was going to say is, so this
3: is an excellent litigation strategy. This is what I tell my students to do in civil procedure, which is to try and get everybody in the chain uh, in the lawsuit. Right, in that even if you're unsuccessful, many of the physicians may have insurance policies, for example, that will and insurance companies covering the medical malpractice that will be apt to settle the case with them. So I would be surprised if a lot of these cases end up going to trial. Actually, I expect that most of them will settle out and or Uh, some of the parties like NEC's liability may be exhausted by this litigation. But should it go to trial, um, my own sense is that actually, and again, I don't practice in this area of law, I'm just aware of it as a a professor, Uh, the liability theories as against prescribing physicians are on sure foots than on the ones for treating physicians, if there's a gap between the two. But certainly there is well-established kind of liability theories as against prescribing physicians, especially if they knew or should have known, uh, or a member of the learner profession would have knew knew or should have known, the problems at NEC, and they continue to use that specific uh, compounding pharmacy.
2: And Glenn, I know you need to be off early and we're just about reaching that point for you. So what I'd like to do with you is is kind of get some overarching uh, thoughts about this whole situation, your kind of summary of the situation, and then your contact information for our listeners to, to uh reach out to you, and then Michael and I will finish up with the program.
3: Sure, that sounds great. I mean, so my overarching question I think a lot of people are asking is, how did this happen and why did this happen? Where is the failure? So obviously there are failures, it appears, at NEC. There may be some failures uh, in terms of the prescribers, but one question is whether FDA needs more authority here uh, than it has. And the history of this, just kind of in very brief form, is – uh, in the 90s, as I said, uh, FDA was getting a little bit more muscular about its enforcement against uh, compounding pharmacies. There was a question about whether it really had the authority to do it or not. Uh, Congress in 97 passed the FDAMA, the Food and Drug Act moderniza- uh, Agency Modernization Act that kind of gave it the authority and also sort of carved out uh, a list of factors FDA would look at in terms of whether it would go after a compounding pharmacy versus leaving regulation uh, to the states. In 2000, in the early 2000s, the Supreme Court uh, heard a challenge to a part of that act relating to advertising Um And held it unconstitutional as to one piece of it, and there's been a a, a continuing legal dispute about the severability of that piece of the statute with the rest of the statute, Uh, although FDA still takes the position, and I think correctly so, that it has authority over these compounding uh, pharmacies and it has a a guidance document that it reissued in 2002 to that effect. So my own sense is a lot of the public discourse is about does FDA need more authority? Congress is having hearings. My own sense is that while clarification on FDA's authority would be desirable, the authority is pretty clear that it's there. And really what we're talking about is about enforcement priorities, uh, FDA's budget and those kinds of things. So if Congress is going to act I would like to see them act not in the uh, legislative realm of increasing FDA's uh, paper or regulatory authority, but in the practical realm of increasing its funding and, inf- and making enforcement a priority.
2: And your contact information, if our listeners would like to reach out to
3: you. Sure. Uh, you can find me on the Harvard Law website, and my email is igcohen IGCOHN at law.harvard.edu.
2: Great. Well, we'd like to thank uh, Glenn Cohen, Assistant Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Petrie-Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School for joining us this morning. And I know you've got to leave early uh, in the show to your schedule, so thank you very much for being on our show.
3: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Great.
2: Now, Michael, let's... Um, Let's visit this issue again. Just We kind of briefly touched on the release of documents by uh, the state of Massachusetts that NECC escaped harsh sanctions in 2004 and again in 2006, apparently for repeated violations. Uh, why wasn't that addressed, and how does that play into your lawsuits?
0: Well, I don't know why it wasn't addressed, and I think we're all waiting to hear and see why it was not addressed. Uh, certainly, it's critical uh, for... Uh, the cases that we're bringing now, uh, because there was and there were significant problems, some of which were uh, identical uh, or at least similar to the problems that have occurred this year. And, of course, had these problems been identified, recognized, and resolved, then uh, one would hope and think we wouldn't be where we are today. Um It's very interesting, at least from what we can see and tell, and um, every day I think we're going to know more. For example, on Monday, the uh, United States House of Representatives, uh, leaders of the House Energy and Commerce Committee are uh, continuously requesting uh, more documents. On Monday, uh, they spoke or actually they wrote to NECC requesting all inspection reports, internal guidelines, and communications with federal and state regulators. Uh, and uh, obviously we're all waiting to see what, if any, uh, response NECC's attorneys uh, have uh, to this request. Um, Congress is in recess, so may not be a hearing anytime soon, but uh, we're certainly hoping for that. Um, The concern is that this conduct may have been occurring for 10-15 years and uh, uh, there are reports that the two principles of NECC were basically able to uh, talk the, themselves and their company uh, out of trouble uh, with the uh, state of Massachusetts Pharmacy Board uh, and that initially there reports that the Pharmacy Board proposed sanctioning NECC in 2004 with three years of probation and a public uh, reprimand uh, and this was in response to allegations that the pharmacy violated accepted standards for compounding the same exact drug that is uh, the subject of the fungal meningitis now, it's the same steroid that's uh, linked to the current outbreak, um, but nothing happened. Two years later, the board apparently agreed to a non-disciplinary settlement with NECC, and agreed not to report the agreement to the National Association of State Boards of Pharmacy or any other outside agencies. And uh, it's reported that NECC's lawyer uh, pleaded with the board not to issue a public reprimand because it uh, would have put the company out of business. Um, In 2004, pharmacists in Ohio and Wisconsin complained to the board that NECC and its chief pharmacists were soliciting out-of-state prescriptions for office use and using a form that was not approved by the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. Uh, The same year, the board issued another advisory letter to NECC, noting that it had received a complaint from a uh, concerned Texas pharmacist about products being solicited by uh, one of the principals of the company. And an internal investigation revealed that NECC was offering an eye treatment and improperly included promotional material and terminology in the advertisements. Um, obviously, they were playing fast and loose and they were able to do so because uh, there was no strict uh, regulations here. Uh, the FDA was non-existent because this was a compounding pharmacy and not a large drug manufacturing company uh, or at least they were not holding themselves out as that. We know otherwise, we know that they were incredibly successful, they had a very successful and lucrative business and as um, Representative Markey has so I think aptly put it, they were masquerading as a compounding pharmacy in order to escape FDA regulation when in actuality they were operating as a drug manufacturer.
2: Well, it's time for us to take a short break. We will have much more on the meningitis scare and regulations when lawyer to lawyer returns right after this.
4: Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most
2: important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software. And they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. But I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the, the excitement is they're now able to realize the the potential of IT without all of the
3: headaches.
4: We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack.
3: Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O o.com. It's the
4: office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegaledCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE.
1: That's perfect. The office can wait. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too.
2: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're talking with attorney Michael Barrett, a personal injury attorney from the firm Salts, Mangluzzi, Barrett, and Vandeski, P.C., in the beginning of the program, we had Glenn Cohen, assistant professor of law and co-director of the Petrie-Flom Center for Health, Law, Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. But Professor Cohen left early. So, Michael, let's um, switch back to uh, something that you mentioned about these, this fungal meningitis. Physically, how does a fungus get into a medicine? Is this just uh, like it does at your house? It's just sloppy uh, cleaning and, and sloppy care? How does this thing occur?
0: Um, I think that's, that's a very good comparison. Uh, clearly, the appropriate safety standards insofar as uh, cleanliness and sterilization uh, could not have been kept nor maintained at NECC. And uh, that's exactly what happened. It was uh, a, a dirty, dirty place and uh, uh, fungal bacteria was permitted to uh, be injected in the process, and uh, um, that's exactly what happened. The standards that uh, are required of a drug manufacturer, because that's what they were doing here. They were manufacturing uh, these steroids, and they were shipping them all over the country, as we know. Uh, they were doing it uh, as cheaply as possible, and I think that's what we're going to find, that NECC was able to, uh, undercut the market and sell their product for much less. And that's why, uh, the practices purchased it, because they were able to undersell, uh, their competitors. And there's a saying, you get what you pay for. And unfortunately, uh, uh that's what happened here. And the people who are, are clearly uh, most prejudiced are the people who are totally innocent, and that's uh, uh, the patients, my clients, who uh, would go to their doctor and uh, would certainly expect that whatever medications were being injected into their bodies were safe.
2: You know, it, it sounds from what you and Professor Kona said, that there is a, a lack of regulatory uh, oversight, and particularly here by the Massachusetts uh, Board of Pharmacy, but. You know, given sovereign immunity, what type of liability does the state have for this?
0: Well, that's you know the the, the state, the FDA, the state of Massachusetts, uh, uh, the regulatory bodies. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it's very, very, very difficult uh, to to sue them or to blame them. But but here, um, while we all rely and depend upon. Governmental agencies such as the FDA or our own state or Commonwealth uh, departments of health, um, the the greater responsibility here uh, lies with the um, folks, the people who are responsible for the creation of these tainted medications, placing them into the stream of commerce, and um, using them uh, and, and giving them or providing them to to uh, innocent patients.
2: What can consumers do to protect themselves against this type of thing? I mean, you know, I, I recently went to my doctor and got a, a steroid shot uh, to deal with a, a little bit of a rash uh, from an antihistamine standpoint. And you know, I don't know what kind of medication they get, where they, where they got it from. How am I supposed sure. to deal with that sure as, a, it as an individual is potentially getting this shot?
0: Well, I don't think uh, until now, you or I would think about that because we would rely and trust our health care providers. We would hope that our health care providers uh, uh, purchase medications that are being uh, prescribed to us or injected into our bodies uh, from reputable uh, companies and that they have done some type of investigation in that regard. Uh, clearly, when a physician prescribes medications for you, they have... Uh, some familiarity with the type of drug, the drug mechanism, and the manufacturer of the drug. Here, you would hope and expect that that same conduct would be exhibited. Apparently, it wasn't, though. And that's why we've included the um, uh, the physicians and uh, the hospitals and the practices in here. And as I said, I think we're going to find that uh, uh, the reason why, or certainly an, uh, an overriding reason why, um, NECC uh, was was so successful and that uh, so many uh, physicians and and uh, uh, hospitals and practices purchased from them was because uh, they were the cheapest.
2: Well, Michael, it's uh, we've just reached the end of our program, so it's time to wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information, so I'll turn the mic over to you now.
0: Sure. Well, I just want to thank you so much for permitting me to be on your program today. And to be with your audience nationwide, it's a great honor and privilege. Uh, I've been practicing for, uh, uh, 28 years in the realm of plaintiff's personal injury. And, uh, uh, I view it as a, an honor and a privilege to represent, uh, innocent victims as I have and as I am in these cases. Uh, I can be reached at my firm, Saltz, Mongalusi, Barrett, and Bendesky. Uh, my contact information my email is m barrett b-a-r-r-e-t-t at s and sam amazon mary B as and boy b as and boy dot com.
2: Great. Well we very much appreciate you being on the show today and I want to thank you for your participation and this is certainly a, a troubling issue for a great number of us uh that worry about you know our medical treatment and, and how it's handled and how the, the drugs that we use are are actually made and, and uh, injected into us. So Something to be aware of and be careful of. uh, And hopefully the people that have been injured uh, get better. And and we express our sympathies to the family members and friends of those who have lost their lives to this unfortunate uh, incident. So, Michael, thank you very much for being on the show today.
0: Thank you. My pleasure.
2: And we have an announcement to make here from the Legal Talk Network and from uh, Lawyer to Lawyer. And that is that after seven years... Uh, the Legal Talk Network has uh, run out of funding, and as a consequence, we will be terminating uh, our podcast, the Legal the Legal Talk Network, all of the Legal Talk Network podcasts, and in particular, our podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, after being the longest-running podcast on the internet anywhere after seven years, uh, will be shutting down next week. And I'd like to read a statement to you from uh, our uh, executive producer and, and Legal Talk Network owner, Lou Reeb. She says, I want to thank listeners for their loyalty over the last seven plus years and hope they found the content useful, interesting, and even sometimes entertaining. We started the Legal Talk Network with Lawyer to Lawyer as our first podcast back in 2005. Our vision was to create an online forum for creative and timely legal news and information and discussion format for legal professionals. We developed a broadcast style and new media delivery of legal podcasts, and the audience responded. Legal Talk Network grew to 15 regularly produced and published legal podcasts. The high quality of our program set the mark for all others in the legal profession, and we're very proud to have been a part of this new media initiative and the legal community for so long. Lawyer to Lawyer, our flagship show, has been the longest continuing running legal podcast anywhere. In fact, I think it's the longest running podcast. The content's always been our top priority. We've had extremely interesting topics on Lawyer to Lawyer, ranging from the Supreme Court, important civil and criminal cases, to social media for lawyers, couldn't even begin to name all the subject areas we've covered. And we've had important guests on Lawyer to Lawyer, many of whom are world-class legal experts in their fields. Lawyer to Lawyer has been recorded and published religiously every week with great work from the Legal Talk Network staff of producers and technicians, led by Kate Kenney and Mike Hockman, along with... Our expert hosts, Bob Ambrosia and Craig Williams, dedicated professionals and now good friends. Lawyer to Lawyer has been nothing but stellar in every way. It's unfortunate, but the funding for Legal Talk Network has run out. Our last program will be recorded and published next week. You'll be able to listen to all Legal Talk Network podcasts until the end of the year. We thank you for listening and being a part of our community. And we especially want to thank Luann Reeb and her earlier partner, Scott Hess, for starting up the Legal Talk Network and working with Bob and I to host Lawyer to Lawyer all these years. Bob and I are very uh, saddened and disappointed that the show will be coming to an end because we tremendously enjoy visiting with each of you each week. And we want to express our gratitude to all of our listeners and all of our guests over the last seven years for participating in the show. So tune in next week for our last show. We want to remind you that you can still get West CLE credits through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to Legal Talk Network and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes, as well as this one from Lawyer to Lawyer. And we will be back again next week for our last show with another great legal topic. So when you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.
1: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss.